This is a HeadGum Podcast. Before I start the episode, I just wanted to give a big Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin salute to Thomas Warnack, who wrote in and suggested uh, the guest you are about to hear from. Uh, if you have someone you'd like to hear on this podcast, don't keep it to yourself. Reach out. You can find my email address on my website, but you can also reach me via Twitter, via Facebook. You get the idea. All right, here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today here with Grant Kirkhope, a musician and composer who has worked on music for games like Banjo-Kazooie, GoldenEye 007, Viva Pinata, Civilization Beyond Earth, many others, including the upcoming ukulele. Grant, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm honored. Grant, have you ever had another job besides musician, or is this the only life you know? Yeah, I must admit, I've had a very um, non-job life. Like I went, you know, I went to through school, I left university at 22 and then I kind of ended up just playing like metal bands till I was like 33 <laughs> and then um, by complete fluke I got a job at Rare. So it was absolutely by complete, it was, it was an absolute fluke. I, I had never once ever wanted to be a composer or ever thought I could do it. It was just complete, absolute stroke of luck that I managed to get it in the end. It was really weird. Well, tell me about that fluke. How did you end up working at Rare? So in the time between um, leaving uni, was like I was 22 and 33, I played in like tons of rock bands, like metal bands, I played, I played in like, like, a, like a funk soul band too on trumpet, that was like a working band, where um, we'd play like, you know, three, four, five nights a week for like seven or eight years, quite a long time. Um, they were called Zoot and the Roots. And, um, and then I had a friend of mine called uh, Robin Beanland, who um, was uh, in one of the local bands that I played for. And um, he was a keyboard player, and he used to write sort of little little ditties that he thought were kind of video game centric. And I was always thought it was quite interesting, you know, but never never thought anything of it. And one day he said to me, "Yeah, I've got a job." I was like, "What?" Like no one that I knew got a job. We all just like played in bands and claimed unemployment insurance off and on, you know, and lived with our mothers. <laughs> That's what most of us did. Um, and he said, "I've got a job at this place called Rare." I was like, "And, and I, you know, I've never heard of them." Um, I said, wow, he said, yeah, I'm writing music for video games. I, I couldn't believe it. So uh, off he went, um, and about a year and a half went by. And he said to me, you know, Grant, you've been on unemployment benefit for a very long time, <laughs> like 11 years. Um, do you think maybe it might be time for you to try to maybe get a job, you know? So I was like, well, I suppose. So he said, you know, why don't you try to do what I'm doing? So I'd, I'd written sort of songs for the metal bands I'd played before, but nothing ever like composery, you know? Um, so he recommended to me to, to buy some gear. So I bought like an Atari ST with a Mega RAM, a uh, copy of Cubase, a uh, Proteus FX synthesizer. And I just started to write tunes that I thought were like video game centric, really. You, you mentioned that he played music that you thought was video game like and you were trying to write video game like music. Um, in your mind, especially at that time, like what are the qualities of video game music? When you say you're writing video game music, what does that mean exactly? Well, I guess, you know, tunes that were probably... You know, people forget that um, like most video game music is there's no vocals in it, right? So it's just it's just some kind of tune that you know that, that an instrument plays. So it's it's very instrumental music most of the time. So when you're like playing a band, you always like write songs for, for a vocalist, right? So you get used to writing chords and stuff, and you know metal riffs, or whatever, and getting all that kind of groove thing going. But you know, but the vo- the ha- the whole thing that carries the songs the vocal, that someone sings the words and the tune. So when it came to writing video game tunes, it was like, oh, I've got a vocalist now. I have to write a tune 
you know, that's going to be substitute for that. So it makes you think more about the melody and to make it, try to make it catchy, you know. So I played games like, I, I was, I was playing on the SNES then, the Super NES. So I played tons of those games back then. Um, and like, I think that, you know, like Zelda, Link to the Past is, is my favorite game of all time. Excellent selection. Yeah. And I love the music in that game. It's just, it's phenomenal music. That, that really is. So I just tried to do that really. and tried to write tunes using, you know, I guess semi-orchestral instruments really. Um, and I sent five cassette tapes to Rare over the course of that year. I spent doing it. I never got a reply. And then out of the blue, I got a letter saying, please come for an interview. I couldn't believe it. I went down to the, got the letter on the Friday. I got the letter on the Monday. I had the interview on the Friday. I had to go down and take some, t- some pieces that I'd written. I got interviewed by Dave Wise of Donkey Kong fame. And um, I came back on the Monday, I got a letter saying, you got the job. And that was it. I was like, wow, I've got, I've got a job. I couldn't believe it. What did you talk about in that interview? And why do you think they gave you the job? Like, what are they, what are they looking for? And now that you've been, do, been in the industry for some time, you probably have a sense of, you know, what you're looking for when you're trying to hire a video game composer. I don't know whether I was just in the right place at the right time. Like, I knew Robin, obviously. Um, and they asked, me to, they asked me to write sort of um, a, a kind of a, um, a, a guitar-based rock piece because we were doing Killer Instinct 2 at the time on the arcade machine and a kind of Mario platformy type piece, and also a Batman sort of orchestral piece. So I kind of wrote those really quickly and took them down with me. So uh, listen, there was Dave Wise and Simon Farmer, who was a general manager in the little office that I got interviewed in. And they listened to those. They asked me a few questions, nothing very much. It was only about half an hour, really. And so thanks, you know, and that was it. Off I went. Um, hey, I, the old seemed to be nice, but I didn't know um, how, it, how it had gone. I remember Simon saying to me later that he said, I just spoke so quickly. He said, he just couldn't tell half the things that I said because I, I talk faster, I can't help it. <laughs> he said he couldn't make out most of what I was saying. He said, I was giving the job and he'll be, he'll be all right. And it was a bit like that. So I think I've just, they needed somebody at the time. Robin suggested me because I was a guitar player. They needed guitar for, for Killer Instinct. I think it was a bit like that, really. Uh, were you at all intimidated to have to turn in music in such different genres? I feel like if you're uh, a metal guitarist, you probably mostly play metal. Yeah, but like, what the thing about me is because I spent uh, like all my childhood years being classically trained, right? So from like six, I was playing trumpet right up to 22. So I went through all the kind of school orchestras and the local orchestra, the county orchestra, went to music college and did a four-year degree in proper classical trumpet playing. So I had that background all the time, plus I was kind of a self-taught metal guitar player. So I had kind of both sides of it, really. And even though that when I was at university, you had to pass the, the harmony exam, like, you know, you had to pass it within the four years. And like, I, I failed it like three out of four times because I'm so bad at harmony and all that stuff. I was terrible at it, you know. That's why I never dreamt of being a composer because I was so bad at it. Um, but I managed to scrape through in the last year. So, What you know, is the I, harmony test? How, how, how do they test your harmony in, in music school? Well, you have, to, you have to write chord sequences and identify, you have to learn about how harmony works, like, you know, what chords to use. There's, there's certain kind of um, patterns you can use, learn about writing melodies and analyzing music. So they give you a bit of music to analyze. You have to analyze it and say, Here's the chord. Here's the structure of it. it. Goes to this section, to this section. It's just like I guess it's a bit like math, bit for music. Um, so it's that, that that test. They don't ask you to compose a piece of music. They ask you to analyze something, and there's a right and a wrong answer. Yeah, it's all completely theoretical. It's all theory. There's no actual comp- composing at all. It's all about the theory. Right? You know, you have to learn. There's a whole bunch of words you have to learn in, in Italian, like you know, adagio and piano and forte. And, you know, you have to learn chord sequences, identify intervals. There's, there's, I mean, it's it's the proper kind of. I guess it's like 
it's the grammar of music. Like like English is like when you write when you learn the alphabet, learn words. That's the grammar of English. This is the grammar of music. So in a weird way, you were training for this job that you didn't even know really existed. But that is sort of the perfect training for uh, what you're doing because you do have to work in all these different genres. Is that right? Yeah, but you never talked to like composing different genres. That was never a part of the thing. You just got taught to understand music and to play it and to understand it. And because you're in a classical environment, it's always classical the whole time, right? So I was doing metal in my spare time and, and classical when I was at college. But I think when you get to be, I mean, a good thing to be is, is like have a good set of ears. So my dad was a massive, you know, Frank Sinatra fan and Glenn Miller fan. So when I was a kid, I, I don't I don't hear the jazz stuff and um, you know the the big band sound and all that when I was a kid. So I kind of heard that a lot so it, you know it sticks in your brain i think so i guess i got that little bit and then i got the classical training plus doing the metal stuff you know myself i'm playing in the soul band as well i was soul funk band i played for a lot of times so it gives you a bit of a good grounding all around really i think does the classical music and studying classical music uh inform your work in metal at all or are they two different disciplines no i think it can i think there's very certain structured um like chord sequences that can help you out I, I, I always think that when I'm writing stuff, I might instinctively know what, what the next chord's going to be without really having to know what it is because I'm just used to the sound of it. Right. But I must admit, I really don't think that having a kind of, any kind of music education helps you write music. It, it, I don't think it's necessary. I think, and a lot of composers are really, really good who have had no actual classical formal training. I think it's all about your ear. If you can hear it, you can write it. And I think that your ear is the most important thing. Listen to lots of different kinds of music. Listen to tons and tons of stuff. And pick up on it. That's how you do it. Okay, so you are hired by Rare. You show up, first day of work, what happens? Do they hand you a prototype and they're like, here, write music for this? Or what? What? what how do you get started even? Well, I had a little, it was the old chicken shed that they converted into an office. That's what I was putting in when I first got there. Um, and it was um, a load of gear turned up the first day, that I, like equipment that they bought for me. So I kind of put that together best I could. And then uh, my first task was uh, Dave Wise had just done uh, Donkey Kong Country 2, Diddy Kong's Quest on the Super NES. And my job was to convert his tunes to run, work on the original Game Boy. So um, so Dave kind of came in that first day, second day, and said, this is how you work it. And it was all uh, in hex. Um, there was no actual kind of MIDI file musical thing about it. It was all like four numbers on a black screen. I think the first two numbers were the note and the second two numbers were the length. It was like all written like in, in a big long column of numbers, and I was like, "Oh my god, I can't do this." And Dave was really quick at showing me; he was really fantastic at it because he'd done it a lot of years. And I was like, "Oh, this is so difficult." And I really thought I'd have to quit. I remember I said to Robin, I said, "Look, honestly, Robin, I'll, I'll have to resign. I just it's just too hard. I can't do it." He said, "Look, don't be stupid. Get Dave back tomorrow and ask him to, you know, take it, go through it again slowly, and write down every step." So I got Dave back the next day, um, and I wrote down every. I had step one, you know, press out four. Step two, press some whatever it was, a key combination on the keyboard, and um, so I, I, I kind of learned it really slowly, and I just went through his tunes from the the Super NES version of Diddy Kong's Quest and, and converted them to work on the Game Boy, and that's my first job. So I want to understand what exactly you mean when you say you're writing it in hex. So instead of writing the music, say on sheet music, like I like I who am not a musician might imagine a composer would do. Instead, you're you're sort of writing it in math and in letters and numbers and telling the computer how long to play each note. Yeah, it's just numbers, really, um, and it's not because, it, like, as a most modern day kind of media composers now use some kind of sequencing software like Cubase or Logic or all that kind of stuff or Sonar or you know, and they basically just record note information. So when you play the key, the actual piano keyboard, 
into the computer it goes it goes through MIDI, which is musical instrument digital interface and that records like velocity and the note you're playing how long it is so it converts it all into like friendly stuff but when you do it in hex there's none of that you just actually have to kind of work out what the notes the notes are in the tune you try to convert and then put it into into number form and so you could have like you know little programs that would run outside the main i forget i only did it once that's i forget what it's called but you could write subclauses. It's a bit like code, really. It's a bit like coding, but very, very simple. Um, so I had to kind of learn to do that. So it's, it was completely alien to anything I'd done before. But it must have been uh, a good learning experience um, for video game music to basically like take someone's music apart and then re uh, con- transmogrify it to this new format. Did you learn? I mean, obviously, you had to learn how the software worked and all that worked. But did you learn anything else just going through that process? Well, there was little bits and pieces, you know, because like I used to always wonder how the Game Boy got that kind of echoey effect on the notes, because there's no there's no echo reverb in the in the machine. It's too there's not a processing power for it. But there's a trick where you would you'd play a note, leave a gap, play the first note again, but quietly, and then play the second note again, and then re- repeat it quietly. So you'd get it would repeat it by itself. It's quite a complicated procedure, and that's how you got that little kind of echoey thing that would go on in, in like in the uh, in the main tune and the game boy only had four channels right you, had, you could have three notes and the fourth channel was a noise channel and the noise channel just generated funny noises that could be used for sound effects and drum sounds so you can have one note for the melody one note to kind of imply the harmony and for the bass and that was it when you are working on a game like this does the composer have any input into the other the rest of the audio that fourth channel you mentioned and the sound effects and that kind of thing or is that a separate department no, it's just you, you do. I did it all. Um, so Dave would like have a listen now and then, but um, he was busy doing um, the game called Dream at the time, which turned into Banjo Kazooie later. So he was busy doing that. So he kind of said, you know, the Game Boy's yours. And he said, you know, in the, the next game you'll do, he was already saying to me, you might get to do Donkey Kong 3 on the Game Boy. I was thinking, oh God, I don't want to do it again. And then he said, after that, you might get a game on the Virtual Boy because the Virtual Boy was around then. And I was like, oh God, this is not very exciting because they were they were writing great stuff. Like Robin was doing Killer Instinct, Graham Norgate was doing uh, um, Blast Core and uh, Goldeneye, and Evelyn was doing Donkey Kong Three. Dave was doing Dream, and I was stuck on the Game Boy, thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible, you know. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, Dave poked his nose in, but after I got going, I, I mean, in the end, you know, I quite liked it. It was quite good fun because it was. I was trying to see how much I could push the Game Boy, see how much I could do it. Um, so, uh, it, yeah, it was good fun in the end, but I think at the start it was a bit daunting, a little bit scary. Was it difficult to adjust to, uh, you know, having a job in an office and going in and having people to count on you and those kind of things? Um, did how, how did you take to that? Yeah, like I've never had a job in my life before, right? That's ne- I've never done it. So for me, I was always just, you know, sat on unemployment benefit or playing in, playing in bands. So um, <clears throat> to actually have to go at nine in the morning and start nine till five in the UK is a bit of a, a, bit of a, a, bit of a heavy learning curve. Having to get up in the morning was a bit weird and I wasn't used to that. Um, but you know, it, it, at the start, it was so exciting because Rare just was becoming like a really big name then. Right. So, give me a sense where Rare, the company, was at that time. So they just kind of had that huge success with Donkey Kong Country One, which did like ten million copies, and Nintendo had bought a share in the company. Like it, that was reported on the main news stations in the in the UK. It was such a big deal. Nintendo never ever bought into a Western company ever. It was a gigantic news, you know. And prior to that, Rare had been called Ultimate Play the Game. And they had a, they had a huge success on the on the spectrum. Like, they were already really a really wealthy company before that. But then they just decided to switch, you know, to learn. They actually they actually started work on the, on the NES. And Chris Stampy, who was, was one of the brothers who led the company, was a coder. And he reverse-engineered 
the NES to work out how it worked because Nintendo wouldn't tell anybody because, you know, they didn't care about Western people at all. So he reverse engineered it and uh, presented Nintendo with a game they'd made and Nintendo said they, they couldn't believe how good it was and they were the only Western company that Nintendo gave a license to. So they were already big news by then, but quite big news, if you know what I mean. But after Donkey Kong Country came out, that was just gigantic. So they're already a very successful company. When I got there, there was lots of Ferraris in the car park and things like that. Um, so it's quite stunning, really, you know. And I was so excited to be there because they were doing Killer Instinct, and that was I thought that was a fantastic game, and Donkey Kong. And, and then when I got there, they learned they were doing GoldenEye. I was like, oh, my God, it's amazing. So it was, you know, very – it was super exciting. To, I couldn't believe I got a job. I was so excited. How long did it take you to get out of sort of the Game Boy basement? Well, I probably, I'd say probably I started in October 95 and I'd say probably by December I'd started work on GoldenEye. Um, so uh, Graham Norgate was doing GoldenEye and Blastcore. So I'm, I'm really busy with Blastcore. Could you take over GoldenEye? I was like, you're joking. I'd love to take over GoldenEye. So um, I got a N64 dev kit off uh, from the, you know, from the company gave me one of those. And I started to learn how to, how to, how to work that. And I started working GoldenEye. So I kind of, I was doing the Game Boy in the morning. It was agreed I could do Game Boy in the morning and GoldenEye in the afternoon. So that's how my work schedule was. Now, it's kind of funny to hear you just like say, you know, do you want to do GoldenEye? Because at the time, uh, it, it wasn't out yet. But now it's, um, I mean, probably one of, the, one of the most well-regarded video games of all time. You know, it, it's um, one of the most well-received, one of the most famous, one of the most popular, all those things, um, video games. But at the time... Um, it sounds like you were excited to work on it. What did it look like at the time before it came out? What were you looking at? And what got you excited about working on it? It was. It looked pretty much, I guess, the early stages of how it looked in the end, really. Like that, all that kind of corridor-based walking around stuff was already in there. And they, they, liked, they really liked Virtua Cop back then, that Sega game. Yeah. So that it was very based on that, I think, originally. But um, it was very slow, very slow development on that game. It took a long time to get going. Like the game was supposed to be out with the movie. I think it made it out... Nearly the, by the time the next movie would come out, that I think it was well, it's not enough. Um, so it was very behind. Uh, I think it, at one point um, it wasn't going so well, and Nintendo actually stopped paying Rare for it for three months because they thought it was so bad. But Nintendo just, just didn't tell the team, and the team kept working on it, and they managed to talk Nintendo into taking it on again, <laughs> kind of thing, which is completely weird. And also, um, the t- the team really thought that multiplayer was a great idea, but Nintendo and Rare didn't like the multi, didn't think it was a good idea at all. So the team worked on it in secret. That's crazy because that's the thing it's the most famous for. I know exactly, and they only presented it to the to Nintendo and Rare right at the end, just about before they're about to go to Gold Master, and um, they were like, "God, this is fantastic!" But it wasn't for the team working on it; it would never have been there because Nintendo and Rare didn't want it. Did you know? Um, even before it came out, before it became this phenomenon, that it was a special game, that that was something, even within Rare, who had just had this big hit with Donkey Kong Country and Killer Instinct, that that was going to be a special game? No way. Like, the game was rough for a very long time. Is that true for most games? Are most games rough for a long time? Um, Sometimes. Or, like, Banjo-Kazooie or any of the games that you've worked on. Were any of them, like, you just, like, even in beta form, like, you could kind of see it, or do they usually take a while to coalesce? Well, none of them were were as rough as Goldeneye, put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah, Gold was very rough for a long time. I remember going to the E3 prior to the game getting released, or just about to get it was getting shown there. And I remember there's a gigantic list of bugs that really said we're just not going to fix them. There's just no time. So the game's pretty buggy, really, all in all. But you know, no one really thought it was going to do anything. Cause it was so behind that it was behind the times. It was well past the gut, the movie the movie coming out. Um, no one really thought just just thought they thought just get it out and get rid of it and get on with the next one because it was gonna, not going to go very well. And the thing about Gold and I was a bit strange because. These days, when games are hits, they come out the doors and go a massive spike in sales and really die off. 
And GoldenEye was a really slow burner. It just came out, kind of linked out, and they just got it just gained popularity. It just kept going and going and going and going as people discovered the multiplayer and how they could do with it with their friends, and it became a real college game in America. And it it just it just no one could have believed it would have been the success that it was. And it just just it limped out and just kept gaining popularity and just ended up this gigantic thing, which is which I guess I mean Golden I really changed the face of first person shooters, you know, going everything from that point onwards changed. You know, it was amazing. Walk me through what it's like to I don't know, how do you start composing the game? Do you play the beta? Do you talk uh, to the developers and get a sense of like the tone and the mood. Like, how do you even begin to start uh, writing music for a game? And let's use Goldeneye as an example because we're talking about it. But just in general, I think Goldeneye is probably a little bit odd one out because you know everyone knows what the music for that sounds right. like. Right? It's like it's kind of you know what James Bond. James Bond already has um, sort of a musical theme and um, motif yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Everyone knows Monty Norman's famous James Bond theme, right? So, and like he's very protective of that theme. Um, but we got the rights to use it, and I, it was for me. It was great because you know I'm a I'm, I'm the kind of age person who um, got, you know James Bond's still a big deal to me. I love Bond movies, you know, and like the early ones I remember with Sean Connery and all the rest of it. So you know it was fantastic for me to get the chance to do that and work work on those tunes. And we bought we bought the um, the at the time we brought out this double CD all the pop songs from the Bond movies up to that point. So I, I was just playing those all, all day long, listening to the little bits and, you know, stealing bits here and there. And also I knew the orchestral scores really well as well. So, you know, but, but also I was just, I just talked to Martin Hollis, who was a game, the game, I guess you'd call him the game leader, head of the game. So he'd, you know, you know on some of the levels that weren't built, so let's say this is a facility level, it's going to be like this. And I'd go away and write it in my head, you know, and go and then bring it back and, and, and they'd like it and stick it in the game, you know, so... It was a bit like that, but I think when it came to different games like maybe Banjo Kazooie, I was in I was on Banjo from day one, right from the start. So I saw it, you know, go through lots of changes and stuff like that. So um, that was that was a bit different. I, I had to kind of find my own voice. I had to find my own music there. Like doing the Bond stuff was great fun, but when it came to Banjo, it was like, right, this is your this game's entirely yourself. You do all the music, all the sound effects. It's all yours. Make it good, you know. So that's when I had to really try and come up with something that was a bit different. I thought. For N64, when you're writing music for N64, are the tools better than the Game Boy ones? Because N64 must be, I don't know, a full decade younger than Game Boy, I think, right? Yeah, it, it was very, it was much more powerful. Obviously, you could, you could do, you could use proper sure, sound. Sure, but just the tools for composing music were those better? Had, had those come a long way too? Well, the thing is, right, you, what you do is, you, I've used the same thing to write music for the last twenty years, probably. I use some kind of sequencer. Back then, I used Cubase. Now I use Pro Tools, right? So, so the way I write music now is no different. I still sit down with a keyboard, connected to a computer, playing some kind of instrument sample that gets recorded by the computer. And that's the same as it was back then. It's no different. The, 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 but the quality of, the, of the, the samples you can use is obviously way better now because you can use great big, huge samples are streamed in from the disc. It's all different. Back then, you had to squeeze this little tiny sample into the, the, the RAM, the, the ROM on the cartridge. Um, so, you know, you, you got given like, I think Banjo was, in, was, was on, I think it was on 2 megabit. That was for the entire audio, for like all that music and all the sound effects was on 2 megabit, which is tiny, right? Like, you know, like you wouldn't get, probably one sample nowadays is that size. <laughs> you know, it's incredible how, it's, how much you to squeeze in there. So, you know, it's, the, the process is the same, but the, Quality is way different. And um, I guess there was, we had a way of, we hooked up, we had the dev kits for the N64, right? Used to sit inside this silicon graphics computer, which were very high end, very powerful, expensive computers back then, cost tons of money. 
So, so we all are, because Rare is a rich company, we all have one of those each, which is pretty rare. Um, so the, the N64 dev kit sat inside there. So we could connect the MIDI from our computers to the N64 computer. So when we played a note on the keyboard, it would go through our computer into the dev kit on the N64 and play the sample that would load it in there. So we could really hear what the music would sound like on the N64 before we committed to it. We weren't, there's no guesswork. It sat, the, way we, the way we had it sounding on our computers was exactly how it would sound in the N64. I'd build up a little, I call it a little MIDI orchestra. So I'd, I'd like sample violins and clarinets and drums and, you know, basses and synths and get them as small as I could and compress them down and down and down and down and resample them to much, to much lower um, uh, sample rates. So like CD quality is 44.1 kilohertz, right? So we'd have things at like 16 kilohertz or 11 kilohertz or even, even 8 kilohertz. Which is, you know, which you're, you're using it in quality by a mile, and then compress that. So you can imagine it's going. You get you're resampling it down from 44 kilohertz to like eight kilohertz. Then you're crushing it again to make it even smaller to try and cram as much as you can into the memory space in that cartridge. Right. That's why it sounds a bit crappy. Because um, that's so- different. So the sounds in Gold Goldeneye. When I hear music coming out of Goldeneye, I'm hearing what was once at some point an actual instrument that was played in real life. Right. Not in, well, it, it, all, the, all the music, all the stuff that I put in from Gold, into Goldeneye came from synthesizers. I see, so, I see. But it came yes. from outside the computer. They're samples. Oh, sure. Yes, yeah. We, but we, that's we, different than Super Nintendo and Nintendo and I guess Game Boy too, right? Like those are themselves synthesizers that you have kind of play music back like a player piano. Or am I, am I understanding that correctly? On the NES, I think that was the way it was. But on the Super NES, you could use actual samples the same way. You, oh, the- okay, okay. And what about Game Boy? No, that was all just FM generated, FM synthesis. Gotcha. Okay, that's interesting. So Nintendo 64 and Super Nintendo, like the way you recorded music was just fundamentally different. Yeah, it, you could actually use real samples. So you could, you could, you could get a clarinet, you could, you could sample it and then get it into an editor and crunch it down and make it as small as you could. But, and you had, to, you had to loop it, of course. Because so like, the instrument notes were all, you couldn't afford to have like a big long note in there because it would take up way too much memory. So you'd have to get a little note that went beep. That's all it would sound like. And in that little beep, you'd put two little loop points inside the wave, so the the, start, the sound would start. It would loop back and forth on on the um in the little loop section you put in the note, right? And the, the trick was to get it to sound like really smooth, so you couldn't tell. So that's why that's how you got how you made long notes happen. You'd have a little a tiny little instrument sample that you'd looped that would go round and round and round and round and round, and that's that's how you got things to be really small. Do you get notes on the music? Does the game lead or whoever, you know, put the music in the game and play the level and say, you know, it felt a little too high strung or just whatever? Or do you write the song, it goes in the level, and that's pretty much it? No, no, you always get feedback. I mean, it, it, every, every creative director is different, right? So some guys like to speak a lot about it, some guys don't. So it just depends who you work for. Like as a freelance guy now, I, you know, I get a lot of feedback. Sometimes not so much other times. It just, it just it depends how much people have an interest in music or are busy enough or too busy not to talk about it. You know, it's like, right. like so I guess that um, back at Rare, Rare was very music centric. So Tim Stamper and, and Chris Stamper around the company were really, really big music people, especially Tim. So, and Greg Mayles, who I work with most of the time, like those guys were really, really big on music. They'd go on about it, you know, night and day. They'd say, say look, you know, because they were huge Nintendo fans, so to say, and also um, early LucasArts games, they were like, you know, Monkey Island was there, they loved Monkey Island to death, the secret Monkey Island. We talked about it all the time. Or Full Throttle, any of those games. They the tentacle. Sure, all sure. Up. Yeah. And they were massive Nintendo fans, obviously, because, like, you know, they were owned by Nintendo and they loved the company. So they'd say, you know, you've got to write music that's as good as Mario. 
It's got to be. It's got to be a tune that you can listen to a million times in a row and not get sick of it. You know, that go on. That really would push us really hard. And I think a lot of the the composers that ran in those early days, you know, we had to write a good tune because they, they were really big on that. We all tried our super hardest to try and write something that was memorable and wouldn't get boring and annoying after a while. You know, so I guess it's a great. It was a great training in those days to be put to be pressed that hard. What kind of notes would people give you? Is it about the music or is it about the way the music interacts with the game? All that stuff. Like, the, you know, the matter of the music is too short, too loud, too long, too fat, too thin. You know, you know everything, right? You're not, you know, it's all that stuff. Uh, so, you, you know, it just depends. It can be anything, right? Because a lot of time as a composer, when you work for somebody else, you're often dealing with somebody who isn't musical. So you have to get used to kind of interpreting what they say. It, you know, there might be a lot of the times you get a really bland thing about it's too chirpy or you have to kind of interpret what they're saying because it might not mean chirpy in them. So you might chirpy to them might mean something different to you or chirpy to them doesn't sound like what music is to you. It's weird. So you have to get used to kind of that kind of interpreting what they say. Um, I did a trailer piece of somebody a little while ago um, and it was for a kind of a gothic spooky game. And they're very keen to get that kind of Danny Elfman feel that kind of gothic thing at the start of this trailer before it goes into a big epic bit at the end. And I wrote something that was like, you know, a church, a big churchy organ and a theremin and a, um, um, uh, God, what's, the name, what's the name of the instrument? I can't think of it. It's like harpsichord. Or, you know, it's a very spooky start. And the guy kept saying to me, oh no, it's Halloween. At the, it sounds like Halloween at the start. Really too Halloween-y, too jolly. And I just couldn't work it out. I kept stripping things out. Um, and I, I took, took the theremin away. No, it's still Halloween. I took away the organ. No, no, Halloween. He took away the strings. I was left for nothing, really. I couldn't figure it out. And then I realized it, it, the harpsichord, he thought, reminded him of the Adams family, which reminded him of that kind of classic, kind of comedic horror music. But, but he wasn't saying that. He, he couldn't put into words what he was trying to get me to take out. And I, when I finally realized, I took it out. Yeah, that's it. Brilliant. And I was like, oh, my God. It was, all, it was, just, it was just that all along. And I've written it like 10 times. Um, but because you know, people don't... When people can't use musical terminology, they just have to kind of make up some kind of vocabulary that they think you might understand. And lots of times you might not. So it's, it is a bit like you have to get used to interpreting people's, what, people's thoughts to, into musical language. And I often sort of get people to say, look, if you think of a movie that you think sounds right, what is it? Because everyone's got a movie moment that they like, right? Or like a tune in a movie or Indiana Jones or Star Wars or something like that. And it's a, it's a good kind of language to communicate on because everyone's got a favourite bit. And so that works a lot of the time. You say, look, tell me what, rather than try to work, tell me what you mean. Tell me a movie where you think it works or the bit that you like or is, it, is a good thing for me to take as an example. And that, that's a great way of getting, getting around that kind of bit where you kind of go, I don't know what he means. <laughs> Going to quickly jump in here to let you know that this week's episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. And look, this is not just a way to feed yourself and provide sustenance. Blue Apron is also fun and easy, uh, even if you're not someone who traditionally thinks of themselves as a cook. Their ingredients are sourced sustainably, they are delicious, it is easy, and for less than $10 per person per meal, it arrives at your door fresh. Every week, you can customize your recipes based on what you like. There are several delivery options, and uh, you can take weeks off, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Ruben. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so do not wait. That is blueapron.com slash Ruben. 
as, as a composer, when you're learning these tools, is it, uh, is it at all stifling that you're stuck with, um, you know, such limited sample sizes and all sorts of things, and you, you can't paint with all the colors of the heavy metal rainbow anymore? Or is that freeing to have that constraint, and does that um, replenish you creatively? I think it, it, at the start, it kind of go, oh, my God, it's just sounding awful. But it, it, it really just it, it challenges you to try and make it sound quite good. And I think that Rare's stuff back then sounds pretty good. I mean, people still like it now, and it's ironic that it's all such low quality. You know, um, but I think what I think it, it taught us, the, us, all the guys there, you know, to write a good tune. You know, that was that's we had nothing else. We had no great, huge, you know, these days you can put one finger on a synthesizer and it sounds amazing. Lots of things kick off. And it's all a big wash of sound. You couldn't you couldn't do that then because you just couldn't afford the memory space to put that sample in the machine. Right. So you had your little mediocrity put together by yourself. And you had to write a good tune. because That's all you had. So it made it made you work really hard on that. The most important part, which is a melody. It's very easy to write ambient music that sounds fantastic, I think. But it's not so easy to write a really catchy tune like Star Wars or E.T. or Indiana Jones or Harry Potter or any of those things. It's not easy to write those. To write those iconic tunes is really hard. So I think that a lot of that, sorry, a lot of the guys that I know back from that day can write a good tune because that's all they had. We had to do it. How long does it take you to write the soundtrack for a game? How long were you working on Goldeneye? Goldeneye, I, I, I kind of started it when it just started a little bit. Graham had worked on it for a little while. And then I didn't finish it because I got took off there to uh, taken off there to go on to uh, Dream, which became Banjo Kazooie. So um, I kind of left it maybe three quarters of the way through. Um, and I think it's different. Like when you work as a staff composer, like I was, you can be on a game for a couple of years. It could take that long to make a game, two three years sometimes. But as a freelance guy like I am now, you can be brought in near the end. You might get you know a couple of months to write a soundtrack. So it's different. It can work. And some of the games that I work on now, I get brought in day one. Some of the games get brought in near the end. So it's different as a freelancer. But as a staff guy, you can be there from day one and be on it for like two, three years. When you're working on a game for two or three years, do you get sick of it? Like Banjo-Kazooie, were you like <laughs> over Banjo-Kazooie by the end of it? I think sometimes it can get a bit wearing. But I think the thing about um, back then was at Rare, we each got a game each. So you had to do all the sound effects and all the music. So the times you weren't writing music, you were, you were doing sound effects. So it, it, it kept it, you know, a good variety of stuff to do. So you had to be doing all the sound design, then write some tunes, back to the sound design, write some tunes. So it was a good way. It was really varied. So it was great. What's it like to write sound effects? Is that a different challenge than writing music? That's not something you um, studied in college, I, I, I guess. Well, I get that. For me, that's a bit weird. I've never done it before. So when I got there, it was a bit like, yeah, you do other things. Sound effects too. I was like, ooh. So Rare had a great big, huge kind of CD library because you can buy huge, great libraries full of CDs, full of sound effects. They exist, you know, there's, there's millions of them. And Rare had a gigantic um, CD library. But um, we had a great big physical, like, telephone book directory, which was, like, super thick. And you'd look through it looking for, you know, a hand clap. And you'd find it on CD 40 million, you know, <laughs> uh, index number 15. And then you'd have to go and find that CD. Like one of the guys probably got it to say, like, and there's no, you know, you had to just physically go and find the CD, stick it, you know, put it into a CD player, play it into a sampler, edit that sample, put it into the N64. It was a very long, laborious process. Um, so it's way different now. Um, but then it was like physically find this, or, you know, record the noise yourself. So you've got a little kind of makeshift studio at Rare, which is just a, a, a four little crappy cardboard walls, really, in a little office, nothing flashy at all. And they would go in there and make funny noises or break some bricks or hit something or, you know, doubly uh, good for speech in Banjo-Kazooie. And then we'd record it onto a DAT tape then, 
take the DAT tape back to your room, put it in your DAT player, play it into a sampler, edit into the computer, sorry, edit it, then into the N64. You know, it's a very long process. So there's a combination of making your own sounds and the sounds that you can get off CDs too. So like for footsteps, right, there's a million different footsteps out there. So it's probably, you can probably get them from a CD, right? Um, but for something like a Banjo-Kazooie weird gobbledygook speech, that isn't on a CD. You have to make that yourself. So how did you make that? How did you uh, come up with the speech that they use in that game? That was because there was, we had no memory space. We would like to have had real speech, but there was so tiny amount of memory, there's no way it's going to happen. So I kind of hit upon, hit upon this idea of like just going, like that. So um, I'd, I'd make some noises or get Chris Sutherland who did, did the voices of Banjo-Kazooie, both of them. And we'd just record us. We usually would say, look, say, say, the, say the, um, say the A E I O U. So you got A E I O U, like that kind of thing. It's a bit strange. And you'd call them doing that. Say, do a happy one, a sad one, an angry one, and all that stuff. Um, and then I'd take it back to my room again and cut it up. And then we'd put it into the N64. But we'd do thing like we'd do it like it would be. Um, you'd give it a random pitch. So you'd say between, you know, minus uh, negative point eight to plus 1.2, pick a value between that, that that pitch range, play the sample. And so it would, it would select a random pitch every time. So that would give you that kind of voice inflection. So you'd give, get different pitches in the notes. But what I learned very early on was that the human voice doesn't actually go up and down that much. It's a very narrow, like a, a kind of pitch band. So if you had a, a huge pitch band, it would sound weird. So it would, I'd pick a very narrow pitch band. And some of the characters could have a lot of samples, like Kazooie had a lot of samples, and just, it just worked all right. But Banjo, this wouldn't work. So you'd eat a very few uh, 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 of those, um, maybe three or four, but Kazooie had maybe like 10. Um, and then uh, during the speech and the game, it would, it would randomly select it would randomly select a sample, randomly select a pitch and play that sample. It's different every time then. Yeah, but there's not that many samples, right? But we learned that... Um, as the text appeared on the screen, it would it would match a sample. So we'd break the words into syllables. So the word the word had two syllables, it would get two samples. It would go uh uh, you know, like that. And if the if the um the next word popped up on the screen before the last sample had finished, it would cut that sample and play the next one. So it took a bit of thought to get it to sound well. I mean, it doesn't sound right now, right? It sounds a bit terrible, but um, it kind of gave that get the game its sort of signature sound in a way. People remember that, even though it was bad. Yeah, so it took a little bit of getting right, but that's how it worked. That's interesting because what you just described is not really uh, a composing challenge, and it's uh, sort of technical, but it, it involves the solution that you guys eventually came up with. Like crosses over a few different disciplines and like involve you making up making up some new stuff and figuring out some new things. Was there ever anything else like that that you had to work on um, working on these games? Like just kind of new things you had to figure out. Um, we had that thing with the channel fade. Like when you when you you know the music, you know, kind of. Um, um, that, I'm thinking. What's the word for it? When it goes from, I can't think of a word for it. You know, when it, when the music changed, transfigured, not transfigured. We, we call them variations, right? So, you'd get a main theme in the game, and then when you cross a certain line in the game to a new area, it would play, it would just change to a different arrangement of that of that theme, right? And this is in Banjo Kazooie. Yeah, and Tui as well, and it's all that kind of channel fake stuff. So we kind of got that idea from. Um, the iMuse system on uh, on uh, Secret Monkey Island because we but you know we loved those games a lot right they were fantastic and in that game the music would uh, God I can't think of worth morph call it morph would morph into the next the next kind of variation of itself when you went to different areas and again we couldn't work out how they did it right so we messed around to try to work out how to do it so 
in a MIDI file, you get 16 tracks or 16 channels. So that means, you know, per, so per track at one instrument, so you get on channel one, clarinet, channel two, flute, channel three, bassoon, channel four, flute, I don't know, whatever it was, right? So in the, in the, in the level of the game, Gregor said to me, right, we've got four different areas in the level. So I need, I need to have four different um, versions of the music. So I'd have to use one MIDI file and I'd have to use, say, so like four channels for each. So I'd get four instruments for one bit, you know, four for the next and four for the next. And all those channels would run concurrently. But the, we'd get the programmers to insert volume controls. So all they'd do is would say, right, so the area two needs channel six, ten, 15 and 1, so they'd code it to say, in area 2, play those four channels. And they moved to area 3, we'd say we need a different set of four channels, or whatever, or five channels, whatever it was. So they'd code it to go, when you cross an invisible line that you can't see, it would crossfade from the original four channels to the new four channels, so you'd get a seamless, you know, um, uh, morphing across the channels kind of thing, but it would be, it would just keep playing the same tune, it was all the same thing. So I, I ri- I'd written the entire music with that in, ni- in mind. Even if you played all 16 channels together, it would sound awful. Get out the ones you need, it would sound right. So that's how we did it. It was a channel fading between the channels moving across an invisible line on the floor. Did you, as someone who just accidentally ended up working in the video game industry, did you enjoy figuring out challenges like that? Yeah, it was good. You know, I think that... Plus the fact, it's cool. I'm enjoying hearing about them. No, but like it was like, you know, Rare was was the company at the moment right then, right? That was Rare's golden age, you know, that, the, the late 90s into the 2000s, you know, where everything Rare did to, to, touched just turned to gold. So everyone was so proud to be there. We tried super, super hard to make everything the best it could. And also, Rare was based in an old manor farmhouse that they'd bought years ago. It was an old kind of wreck that they'd done up slowly but surely over the years. And all the outbuildings were all like old stables. There were big, long, narrow buildings, and they converted them into development blocks. So everyone, had, they were called the barns, right? There was a main country manor house, which wasn't that big, where the kind of all the office people were there, like, um, you know, the admin people, all that kind of stuff. And all the teams were in barns um, and were all kept very separate. And all the barns had coded locks. So only we had keys and only and your key would get coded for only your barn. So you couldn't get into another barn to see what anybody else was doing. So we couldn't see Conquer, we couldn't see Golden, I couldn't see um, anything else that was going on at the time. You only saw your own game. So that kept the kind of, like if the competition between the team quite fierce. So not in a nasty way, but like everyone was trying to outdo everybody else. So, um, and also every team wrote their, their own engine, right? So that was a weird thing. Normally these days you get an engine that the entire company uses, but at Rare, we would write a custom engine for our game. So the engine was like super, super optimized just to do what we needed to do in our game. There's no superfluous bits. Like when you get, um, you know, Unreal Engine these days, perhaps some of it you're never going to use because it's not pertinent to your game. But like we wrote game engines that were just pertinent to just what we needed to do for our game. So we kept very separate. As I think about being a music guy, you might work on multiple games. So you, you, the music guys usually get to sort everything because you'd be in lots of different barns because you had to work in different games. But most normal dev guys just saw their own game and nothing else. So that, that kind of friendly like competition was kept very, it was kind of the, the flames were fueled to make everybody try a bit harder. And everyone was, you know, a combination of that and being super proud to be there because Rare was doing so well. Nintendo got a great a great time with them. It's a really golden time to be there. It was awesome. When was the last time you played Banjo-Kazooie? 
That's a bit of a long one. I can't think. Like my, you know, my, I've got a 14 year old son and an 11 year old daughter. My son has played it quite a few times. I mean, he didn't play it till he was a bit older. But it was nice to watch him play it. Do you feel nostalgia? Like you hear banjo jump on a chomper or whatever and make a specific sound, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember the day we made that one. Oh yeah, definitely. Like you know, yeah, I'm never gonna, you know, I've been really lucky. All the games I've worked and I've been really, I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. So the banjo's got a special place in my heart because that's like that's the first game I did by myself. Like I did Goldeneye with Graham Norgate, and I did, uh, did I kind of did, did the Game Boy. That's just me, but that wasn't such a big deal. But getting given banjo by myself was a big deal. That the whole and like Tim said to me, you know, this is your first game, Grant. You know, don't mess it up. It was a bit like that. I was kind of a bit scared. So. Um, you know that I, you know, and for it to, to for it to kind of last the test of time, and people still talk about it now. And you know, in some respects, Banjo's had like a, you know a few leases of life. So it came out originally in like '97 or whatever it was, '98, I can't remember. And then it kind of it, it you know stayed around for a little while. And then when it went into Xbox Live, it had another burst of life then. And then when they re-released it in in rare replay, it had another burst of life then. So you know, it's really spanned the generations, Banjo. So it was a bit of a strange game for that. Like a lot, of the, I get tons of kids that email me now who, who weren't born when Banjo came out. Yeah, they love it. It's incredible how it's kind of, it's just, it's just gone across the years. It's, it's bizarre. I mean, you know, I guess, it, I guess it may look a bit dated, but it's still a fun game at the end of the day. It's one of the most well-remembered Nintendo sixty-four games. It's definitely a classic, but also the music is really well-remembered and was recently re-released on vinyl. Were you involved in that? I was. In fact, I gave them the tracks. They couldn't find the tracks. So I gave them. The- <laughs> so you still do you still have all the tracks for like all the projects you ever worked on? Yeah, everything, yeah, the whole lot. Uh, what was it like to revisit it for that? That's kind of funny to take something that was like made for Nint- the Nintendo 64 and this very specific limited sound chip and to put it on vinyl where you could put, you know, any sound. Like, was, was it at all silly going through that process? Well, it's bizarre that you think that people, you know, but that kind of released Banjo-Kazooie on a CD too and it's like, it was like, you know, CD quality. Like, that nothing, there's not a single instrument in that entire game that's, that is recorded that is at CD quality. It's nowhere near. And the fact that it's on a vinyl, which could play high quality music, there's nothing in that in that music, not a single instrument sample that is anywhere near high quality, like not even half CD quality, 22 kilohertz, nowhere near that. Like it's bizarre that it's people play it on high fidelity systems and go, oh, yeah, it sounds great. It doesn't. It just doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Nothing on that thing exists. Like it's bizarre that um, somebody um, on, on Goldeneye, right? When I first started on Goldeneye, I was waiting for an N64 dev kit to turn up. I hadn't got one. So I started writing music at high quality, at the full quality right. So I wrote maybe six, seven tracks like that. And I put them on my website uh, years ago, um, just to see people, so people could hear what they sounded like when I originally wrote it. And it, you know, it was there for like maybe probably five years, but something recently. When you say years ago, you mean years ago, but since the release of GoldenEye, like this is post GoldenEye being a huge thing. Yes, yes, yes. But but people have ripped them off and put them on uh, YouTube uh, and, uh, for some reason they got discovered i can't remember why but it just got tons of papers reported oh my god here we are here's this uncompressed goldeneye music that they've never heard before like it was a big deal at the time it was everywhere like every every magazine and like game informer all all reporting on it i was like this is a bit weird i've had them on my website for years you know a bit strange and like if you always say and they weren't uncompressed they were just it was a different it was a demo basically yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, people, I think people don't understand. People think it's uncompressed. It's just that isn't, it isn't like that. It's not the truth. You know, you've obviously been uh, very busy composing, um, basically, you know, <laughs> since you started working at Rare. Um, have you also had time to work on original music? No, not at all. I, I, it's a bit weird. I think, you know. So you basically became a composer? Yeah. It's kind of, you know, music was my fun hobby thing to do, like playing bands and all that. That's, that's, that's one of my fun thing to do. And when it became my job, I just kind of ceased. All of that. Like, I don't... I only write music now, after, I guess, for a project. I don't write anything that isn't for a project, for something. 
I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't you know, I was a very, well, I was, I guess I was a pretty good guitar player in the day. I, I could do all the kind of Van Halen stuff, but and I, I'm looking at my guitar right now and I just think I'm just, I just haven't played it in months, years probably, since <laughs> I haven't touched it. Before uh, we wrap up this week's episode of the Jeffrey by Jeffrey Show, I just had to let you know that it was also brought to you by Squarespace. Let's say you've got a heavy metal band and you want to put your music out there. Squarespace is the quickest and easiest way to build that website to put your thing out there. There's never anything to install or patch or upgrade, so you can just focus on the thing it is you want to be doing. You can also get your own domain name with Squarespace's unique domain experience that is transparent and easy to use. Squarespace is the uh, best and easiest way to build a professional and beautiful website. And it's not just used by heavy metal musicians. It's used by a wide range of people and businesses like designers, artists, restaurants, paper airplane champions. On the off chance you get confused, they've got award-winning 24-7 service, so there is really no reason not to give it a chance. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code JEFFRUBIN to get 10% off your first purchase. That is squarespace.com, offer code JEFFRUBIN. Another way that you see that Banjo-Kazooie has persisted is that uh, they're sort of making a spiritual sequel to it, right? Um, that you were involved in that we mentioned earlier, uh, Ukulele, which I guess a lot of your old friends are working on, right? Yeah, that's been a really fantastic experience. So this is, um, just to set it up, this is uh, uh, one of the biggest Kickstarters of all time, I think, certainly one of the biggest in games. Um, a lot of the former Rare employees are making sort of a spiritual successor to Banjo-Kazooie called Yuka-Lele. Those are the two characters. Um, and you're working on the music for it. It's coming out pretty soon, I think, in March, actually, right? Yeah, we're all done. It's all done. It's out in April, April 7th, is it, I think? So what was it like going back to that when you, you know, got that project and sort of opened it up and started thinking about it? What were you thinking about? I think a lot of different things, really. It was nice to kind of go back to that genre again. Because I think I'd done, I was kind of platformed out, really, like doing Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie and Donkey Kong 64. I was a little bit like, I've done a lot of these platform games, you know. So I think the gap in between doing it has been quite good for me. And I think going back to it now has been really refreshing and really super fun. And also... You know, working with the same guys that I work with, it's a core banjo team that I'm making it right. The same guys that, I, that we worked together on those two games back in the back in the day. You know, so it's just the, the most fun thing ever. And like, it's also a bit. It's it's like you know, the only difference now is we've all got wives and mortgages and, and kids and things like that to worry about. We didn't have that back in the day, you know. So, um, but the jokes are the same, the name callings are the same. Nothing's changed in like 18 years or whatever it is. It's been the most greatest thing to do. I think I was very conscious about not being on autopilot because I think I could have done that and just gone back to that kind of banjo thing so I'm hopeful I'm a better composer now than I was then like you know I can't guarantee it but hopefully I am well I think it's exciting for us too because not only have you not done a game like that in a while but there aren't games like that that's probably why you haven't done one is that like it's sort of um, a throwback uh, I, I feel like we, we're all kind of looking for a chance to get back to that era and there hasn't been one in a while have you played the game oh it's awesome yeah honestly I think you're gonna love it like you know I think that it, it's been a really kind of fortunate set of disasters i say to get the team together like some guys got laid off at rare which is bizarre because they're such experienced guys some guys left rare to do it you know took a risk you know so it couldn't have happened apart from this time it, it, it was everything it was like the stars aligned i was i was available but, but, but those guys some of them quit one of the guys called gavin price who's the head of the company he um him and his wife right while he was at rare they had a cake business right that they, they made at a cake shop right and uh, and gav and his wife um 
around the business, right? So, so Gav was used to kind of getting business loans, all that kind of business stuff that none of us would have a clue about, right? So he said, look, I'm going to set it up. I'm going to do it. And like, if he hadn't done it, it wouldn't have happened. Like for him to go, I'm taking the risk. I'm leaving Rare. I'm setting up a company. We're going to make a, a platform game. We're going to do that old stuff. We're all going to get together. I'm going to get the business loans and get on with it. It was just like, it was perfect, perfect alignment at that point. And I, because I, by that point, I'd kind of amassed, you know, a decent Twitter following. So I could instantly get, um, you know, like, I, I, it's not, I mean, not tons, but like 50,000 or so. So I could like, you know, um, tweet out and say, by the way, because all, all the guys that follow me are big Banjo fans, right? So, you know, by the way, I think there's something to announce pretty soon. I think you're going to like it. And they all got excited. And then once we kind of unveiled it, they went mad. And then got the Kickstarter going. That was incredible. So it's been an absolute... I don't know. It's just been such a brilliant thing to do, to go through. We're all so humbled by the response. People to put their hands in their own pocket to finance, to make the game is just incredible. You know, it's just been an absolute whirlwind. It really has. I, uh, I know I'm uh, looking forward. That's definitely one I will be picking up this month. How did you yourself end up making the transition from rare to freelance work? When did you leave? So I left rare in 2008 um, so I just didn't like the way Microsoft was going with the company. Not that, not that it was bad. It just, it just didn't suit me. Um, so it was I, acquired by Microsoft at some point. How did that? How does that work exactly? Because I was always a little confused about that. Because what they were, you know, owned by Nintendo at some point, and then at some point it became a Microsoft company instead. What what was that exactly? So Nintendo owned forty nine percent of the company. That was the way it worked. So I always, always had the kind of you know the uh, the commanding share. And the deal was, after a certain amount of time, Nintendo had to either agree to buy the rest of the company or sell, let their shares be bought by a new buyer. And that was a deal. So when it came to like that time, um, Nintendo decided they didn't want to buy it. They said, look, we'll buy something like 80% of the company, something like that, and we'll give you the rest in shares. And the, the people that, and the Stamper family who own the company said, we don't, we don't want to do that. You either buy it all or you let go. And the, Nintendo said, we're going to let go. So... Rare let itself be known that it was um, up for sale. So Activision came in and and also Microsoft. At that time, Activision weren't as big as they, as they are now. They were not, not, not anywhere near, near as big. So they couldn't really afford it. I remember Bobby, Bobby Kotek like, flew in on a helicopter to try and, you know, talk the, talk the stampers in to try and sell to him. And he was going to give the stampers, um, like, huge shares in Activision and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then some of the company thought it would be nice to be multi-platform because... Activision were a multi-platform. Rare were always, you know, bound to one console usually. Um, so it was nice to, on one company. So it was nice to do that. But the vote eventually went, and Microsoft came in at the last minute, but they offered something like, I think Activision offered like 320 million, something like that. Um, Microsoft will give you 375 million, which is a massive hike, right? And if you're the people that own the company, you're thinking, we'll just pay another 50 million, you know, without doing anything. <laughs> so it's a lot of bread, right? And also, to be fair, at the time, Microsoft had... Um, um, uh, Ed Freeze as the head of uh, MG, uh, Microsoft Game Studios, MGS. He was a real game, and we liked him a lot. Um, and we thought, you know, it's a, it's a good choice. It's a good, it's a good step for Rare. Microsoft just got the Xbox going. They needed broad appeal. That's what Rare did really well. Ed Freeze was a great guy, and so the deal was done. But pretty soon after Microsoft bought the company, Ed Freeze upped and left, and it was like, oh, oh dear. And Shane Kim became the uh, head of MGS, and he was just a business manager. So like. Not a lot of games knowledge there. So it just didn't go so well. I, mean, I was working on Get Grab by the Googlies. That was a game that, that we got out on the Xbox. And there was no way we could possibly provide enough broad appeal content for Microsoft. There was just no way that we were the only company probably providing broad appeal content. And one company can't provide, 
you know, you'd have to provide 20, 30, 40 games, wouldn't you? We managed one in that first time, you know, wasn't going to work. Um, so I think that um, that didn't go well. A lot of the, a lot of the Nintendo fanboys hated us for going to Microsoft. So it was a big backlash. So I think all of that, I really enjoyed doing Viva Piñata. That was great. And uh, Grab of the Ghoulies. And also um, I did um, Banty Casino and Bowls. But at that point, I just felt, it's not right for me. It wasn't that it was a bad company. I just didn't like it anymore. It wasn't, it wasn't the place that I remember it being. And also, how long had you been there? I've been there like 13 years, 12, 13 years. And I love the Stamper family. They were really great people. Like, you know, Tim and Chris, the brothers ran it. Stephen, the brother, was, was, a, was a grounds manager. Carol, Tim's wife, was an admin person. Louise, Tim's sister, Tim and Chris's sister, was in the admin person. Tim and Chris's mum and dad were in the kitchen. <laughs> like, it was all Stamper family. Carol's dad was the head of the operations person. So it was a real family company, right? And they looked after us really well. So I, when they left, I missed it a lot. I really missed the Stampers. I, I, you know, those guys, they changed my life, right? I went from being a you know, on the on the unemployment plan in metal bands to being one of the best companies in the world. It was incredible. So I, I feel like I owe them my life, really. So, you know, when they left, it it, it really, it, it was really empty for me. Um, so, and also at that point, I, I really fancied working in America. So I'd applied for a couple of jobs, kind of, like, kind of you know, not really, you know, half-assed, really. Um, and um, I'd been for a couple, of, a couple of interviews, but kind of not got anywhere. And then Big Huge Games offered me a job as audio director working on Kings of Zamala Reckoning. So um, uh, we picked up our stuff, picked up the kids, and moved to Baltimore. That was 2008. But now you're in, correct me if I'm wrong, you're in Portland. No, I'm in L.A. Oh, I'm sorry. My last guess was in Portland. I got confused. But you're on the West Coast. You are working on a movie, a non-game piece of media. Yeah, yeah. Like, a part of the reason moving to L.A. was to try to get movie stuff. And you're collaborating with your uh, previous collaborator of yours, uh, Pierce Brosnan. Indeed, yes. It's, it's, called, it's called The King's Daughter. It should be out this year, I think. Um, I actually did the music last year. So it should be out this year. I mean, movies are just a bit slower. So it's Pierce Brosnan, William Hurt. And also it's, it's Kaya Scott-Elario. Scott she's the new female lead in Pirates of the Caribbean. She's, she's, she's big news. So it's kind of a fantasy-based, mermaid-y thing. Uh, I, I worked, worked with, that with some other composers, so, but we all get full composer credit, so it's great. It's a big budget, forty million. And that, is this your first movie? Yes, and I've done some shorts. This is the first kind of full proper feature that'll be in cinemas. So, um, yeah, I think these days composers like me, you know, want to be. You, you call yourself a media composer. You'll do TV or or video games or movies, or whatever you can get your hands on, or trailers, or you know, it's just it's changing now. I think people are all just kind of media composers now. Well, it seems like. Um, you know, back in the Banjo Kazooie era, you had this specialty, and you had all these. Uh, you knew how to like work with a Nintendo sixty four and a Game Boy. Um, but now, I imagine the tools for writing a video game soundtrack are probably the same exact tools you'd use to write a movie soundtrack. No, yeah, no, yeah, no difference. So you just, you know, lot, you know, I started writing for like proper live orchestra on Viva Pinata in two thousand seven. So I've done live orchestra a lot. Is writing for gaming r- different than writing for movies? The good thing about writing for movies is that it's linear, right? So you get a scene, it never changes. So you can you can hit all the right points, the emotional part, the scary part, the, the action part. Never, It's the same every time. So you can get a piece of music that's sculptured exactly right. But with a game, because it's interactive, things can be different. Like you can write a boss battle piece, you know, in 15 seconds, but some, some players might beat it in five seconds. Some players might beat it in four hours. You know, so you've got that thing to go, well, I can't write a tune that's too short because some guys are bad at it, some guys are good at it. You've got to try and work out ways to make the music be interactive. So, like, we have managed that on ukulele. It's got the same channel fade stuff going on that Banjo-Kazooie did, but it's different now because in those days it was, like, manipulating MIDI files and samples. Now it's not it's manipulating proper stereo streams, like on a CD. So you've got to, like, run, you know, several stereo streams together and cross-fade between them 
to go to the new level or go underwater like Banjo Kazooie did. So it's still working like that ukulele, but it's a bit more complex. So I think that games of that of that the interactive part of games is always a trick, right? To get it to get your music to somehow interact with the game and make it and, and realize certain events. That I, did, I still don't feel that we're at that level of interactivity on games that we could be. I think the hardware and all that software stuff just isn't quite there yet. It's going to get there one of these days, but manipulating like you know stereo streams is way more difficult than manipulating instant access MIDI files. Right, right. Do you have any um, all-time favorite game soundtracks that are not, I'm, I'm going to say, not ones you've worked on? I'm going to challenge you a little bit further and say not Nintendo, because we all know the Nintendo ones are good. All oh, right, that's tough, because it's always Zelda, Link to the Past, right? That's my favorite forever. Sure, and the Marios are good, and the Metroids are good. Like, but, but what? I'm just curious, like, um, you know, you probably know game music about as well as anyone. I'm curious, like, what are some of your favorites that have really stood out for you over the years? Um, let me think. A good friend of mine, Danny Baranowski, I like his stuff a lot. He writes like um, Super Meat Boy and Brandon Isaac and Crypto Necrodancer. He's uh, I like him a lot. Uh, Jimmy Hinson, another good friend of mine, he's written stuff for um, Call of Duty and uh, uh, Mass Effect. Um, they're, they're good guys. Um, let me think about somebody else. I was a big WoW player at one point, so I used to quite really enjoy the WoW music. My son's a huge Undertale fan, so I listened to bits of that. That's great. Oh, yeah, that's a great soundtrack. Yeah. Um, what else do I think about like that? Things right. The trouble is right because because this last few years really I've been so busy. Like I haven't, I haven't played an awful lot of games, and that's I know it sounds a bit sad, but I really haven't. I, like I spend time maybe watching people play games a little bit to get the gist of it, um, but actually playing it myself is I've not the time to do it. Like this last year, I've done um, this game called Drop Zone, Ukulele, did the movie, I did Ghostbusters, um, I did. Um, uh, and I'm working and, and all that stuff, and I'm working on a big super secret project, which is gigantic, which has been on for like well over a year and a half now. Um, so I've literally worked, uh, no exaggeration, since January 2016, I've been composing every single day, seven days a week till now. I've not had any time off at all. I've, worked, I've had to compose something every day. I mean, obviously it's been beneficial like financially, but it's been a really hard year. I mean, were you nervous when you jumped into freelance that you, if you could have told yourself what you just told me when you jumped into freelance, it probably would have been reassuring. Oh yeah, definitely. Like it was, re- I just thought, how's, how, what's going to happen? I think it's going to be left in the street somewhere. I really did. Um, but a friend of mine, uh, what kicked it off was, a friend of mine worked at uh, Sega in Australia, a, glad, a guy that I've known from England for a long, long time called Jeremy Taylor. He's a great uh, sound guy. And he um, was audio director on uh, Mickey Mouse and uh, the remake of Mickey Mouse and Cast of Illusion, um, which went onto the uh, iPad. And uh, I love you. I, I don't know the iPad one but i love that original game yeah so so he said to me look grant you, you go go freelance we, we really need someone to do the music so do you want to do, do you want to do it and i was like yeah i'll do it so i got to uh, some of the tunes i kind of uh remixed from the original game and i wrote some stuff myself and that kind of kind of got me kicked off with the freelance bit and then i got civilization and then it, it just went from there really so and i think you know because i've been around quite a long time and i'm kind of old um like you know people remember games that I've done in the past, you know, and I think that I'm in that kind of sweet spot now where kids that were like five and ten or whatever in the original Banjo-Kazooie days, Kazooie days are now like in video games companies and want to hire me because they remember the, the old stuff. <laughs> you know, so it's quite nice. That, I mean, I, th- I feel like I'm in that sweet spot where let's get that old bloke to do it. He was good, you know, a bit like that. So, um, yeah, it's been really fortunate. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it couldn't have gone any better. Like what? how next year's going to go, God knows, but it's been good so far. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well, the next time I'm going to hear you, I think, will probably be Ukulele in March. Um, and what was the name of the movie? 
It's the King's Daughter. The King's Daughter is a movie where I will uh, sounds cool. I like those people. I'll, I'll I'll keep an ear out for your work there. Uh, how can people follow you and find out more stuff you're doing and all those sorts of things? So I guess Twitter's best at Grant Kirkhope. Um, that's my main kind of. I do have a Facebook kind of um, fan page, but I don't use it as much. I like Twitter because you can kind of just have a little bit of a laugh. Like you know, Friday nights I get drunk and tweet out when people call me names. It's funny. So I don't know. I quite like that. I, quite, I feel like we're all friends together on Twitter. <laughs> so um, I don't really like that kind of followers thing. I don't like. I don't feel like I, that kind of. I don't like the ego thing at all. So I just kind of feel that it's like fifty thousand friends on Twitter that want to just talk about nonsense to me. I quite like that. It's good fun. Uh, agreed. Well, people should look out for you there. Look out for your work, Grant. Thank you so much uh, making some time tonight telling us uh, about all these great – and thank you for making all these great all these great soundtracks over the years that I've enjoyed um, so much over the years. I really enjoyed talking to you tonight. Thank you for wanting to talk in the first place. I'm very, very nice. Thank you. I'm very honored. Thus concludes another episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I will be back in two weeks, and I'm bringing with me uh, someone I'm very excited for you to hear from. His name is Ben Sisto, and no, he is not the captain of Deep Space Nine. He is uh, the curator of the museum of Who Let the Dogs Out. This guy has an insanely thorough collection of Who Let the Dogs Out uh, memorabilia, paraphernalia, uh, he knows more about Who Let the Dogs Out um, than even the people who recorded the song. I'm not making any of that up, um, and he'll tell you all about it in two weeks on this very podcast, and you'll be the first to hear about it. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, where I'm at Jeff Rubin Show, on Tumblr, on my Facebook fan page, um, you just subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, or you go to JeffRubinJeffRubinShow.com, where, don't forget, uh, you can suggest future guests for the show. Thank you again, Thomas, for suggesting this one. Um, Okay, that's it for this week. See you guys soon. Bye. That was a HeadGum Podcast.